The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Good. Yourself? Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. You're very welcome. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you. Well, Father, I thought that we could get into some emails tonight. It's been a while since we have addressed uh, some of the emails in our inbox. Before we start the topic, I'd like to ask everyone's prayers. Sure. I'd like to ask everyone's prayers for Gerard Kennedy, a dear friend for a long, long time, a very staunch, traditional Catholic, and uh, a real Catholic gentleman. He died in an accident just today, earlier today. So please keep him in your prayers, and also continue uh, your prayers for your fa- his family also. I very much appreciate that. Definitely. In fact, perhaps we could pause and offer a prayer right now. Sure. We join us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Eternal rest grant unto him, O Lord, and, and let, let perpetual light shine upon him. May he rest in peace. Amen. Amen. May his soul and the souls of all the faithful depart. Through the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you, Father. Well, thank you. Well, Father, let's uh, begin with this um, with this question here concerning the glory be to the Father prayer. So this this viewer wrote in and said that uh, they have they have been wondering for ages what exactly we are saying when we pray the glory be. So they kind of uh, break it down line by line. And the first uh, first question here is concerning the line as it was in the beginning. So they ask, are we asking here that God, the Holy Trinity, be glorified by us, his creatures, as he was by himself in the beginning, from the beginning? Uh, So that is the first question, Father, as it was in the beginning. Could you give us a little background on that? Well, we have to remember that the prayers actually were originally uh, in Latin, okay? And uh, in principio was in the beginning, right? And that uh, refers most likely to the the um, the book of Genesis when God created the heaven and the earth. It begins in principio, et ad verbum. Right? Well, that's what we read for the proemium of the Saint, Gospel of Saint John. But we also read in the uh, book of Genesis uh, about God creating in the beginning. And uh, so we rather have to understand by that, that um, from the beginning of creation, uh, mankind, starting with Adam, joined by Eve, right, uh, were created in grace, and they were obedient to God until the first sin. And what we're praying for in the glory be to the Father is that that order that God originally created with Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, created in the perfection of nature and also with the uh, great, great gift of sanctifying grace, that that order return be restored to the world in which all mankind now will finally realize God's plan when he first created the human race, uh, that they would be obedient to God, subject to his will, and therefore uh, following the order that God himself had established, an order that sin had attacked. Um, So we're actually praying that God's will be done, the will of God be realized uh, that, you know, brought him, that that was expressed in creating mankind from the very beginning, in principio. So uh, that's how I understand it, and I think you'll find fathers of the church understand it that way too. Mm-hmm. Most part. 
And so they, they ask, Father, why why, the, why do we say, quote, the beginning, as there was no beginning with God? So are we referencing the beginning of time and not actually the beginning uh, of God? Because God had no beginning, and we even say, and the prayer is now and ever shall be. So we're referencing the beginning of time rather than the beginning of God. Right. Well, when we pray the, uh, the beginning of St. John's Gospel, as we pray at the last Gospel of the Mass, we're referring to the Word of God existing from all eternity with the Father and the Holy Ghost. So we're, we're praying uh, as the circumstances in eternity. And if we were referring to that in, be- in the beginning, but there was no beginning of eternity. That's, that's very antithetical to the whole idea of an eternity, because eternity is uh, existence without beginning, without end. So... Um, we're, we're saying in St. John's Gospel that uh, the uncreated creator, right, the Father, always was also a trinity with the Son and the Holy Ghost. There always were three persons in one God uh, in eternity. Right? No beginning, no end, always God was three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And uh, so we have to understand when you pray these words, in the last gospel of the Mass, we are not saying that there was a beginning of God or a beginning of eternity or a beginning when the Son of God came to be from the Father um, in the sense that we talk about a beginning in time, such that before that moment there was there was nothing, right? Or the Son of God was not the Son of God. We can't understand it that way at all. Uh, we have to understand we're talking about in eternity, there was no beginning. So if our dear writer is saying that, uh, is asking rather, if we're talking to the time, even before there was time, if you might put it that way, if we're talking about eternity, uh, does it refer to God's glorification of himself and uh, self-knowledge and self-love of the will of God? Uh, as it was always, uh, even you know, outside the creation of this world, one could argue that point. One could argue that point, but rather, I think the point is that we're talking about the in principio, in the sense of the Book of Genesis, okay. that uh, when God created mankind at the very beginning of creation, there was complete uh, obedience to the will of God, and uh, all creatures embraced the order that God had created. Um, that is what we're actually trying to, what we really want to reestablish. Our Lord actually came to this earth, the Son of God became man, to reestablish that order in the human soul. But actually, he even went uh, beyond that, you might say, uh, through this, the sanctification of the human soul in such a way that uh, we did not find in Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created in grace. But now we are born in sin, and we have to cooperate cooperate with the actual grace of God to fulfill his holy will, to be justified from our sins, and then sanctified by the grace that we call sanctifying grace. So Adam and Eve did not have to cooperate with the grace of God to be in God's grace when he created them. He simply created them that way. They would have had to have cooperated with the grace of God to remain in the state of grace. But you and I come into existence in the state of sin and as an enemy of God with a sentence of condemnation already leveled against us. And uh, again, by the grace of God, we can escape from that through our Lord Jesus Christ, his merits, and his power to justify from sin and sanctify the soul. So now, uh, for us to gain the state of grace requires our cooperation, as Adam and Eve did not, did not have to when they were created. Well, you and I have to cooperate with the grace of God to be restored, as it were, to have that humanity of ours restored to God's grace. And, uh, you know... As St. Augustine refers to it, oh, happy fault, he says, oh, Felix culpa, oh, happy fault 
that through this we've 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 seen the the magnificence of the love of God for us, and uh, we've also been given to appreciate um, uh, God's goodness, His beauty, uh, and hopefully, inspired by that knowledge, we can accept the grace to love Him in return, as all our with all of our heart and soul. And uh, so, you know, this, our fault has brought to us a Redeemer who has revealed to us the Father, as our Lord said to Philip, Philip, have you not known me? Those who have seen me have seen the Father. And he is the perfect, perfect Son, the, the image of the Father, right? Um, and so, um, in in the coming of the Son of God here on earth, We've actually had God himself walking the earth, speaking to us with a human tongue, healing us with a human touch. Yeah. And uh, we've seen the magnificence of God in the very, through the very humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So St. Augustine talks about that. The fact that that is what brought God to earth so close to us, our sin, could make it indeed a blessed fault if we reject it. Cooperate with the grace of God are justified from sin, sanctified. Um, so, um, in, a, in a sense, you know, we've, we've even gone beyond where God started with us. Uh, in, in that sense, that uh, we can turn to God now and uh, actually cooperate in his work of our own justification and in the work of our own sanctification. Father, we also pray in this prayer that uh, that God be glorified as he is now. What exactly do we mean by that? How is God glorified now? Is he glorified by us, by men? Is he glorified by himself in the Blessed Trinity? How is God glorified as he is now? By the saints in heaven. Sigur erat in principio, et nunc, et semper. As it was in the beginning, is now, that God is glorified now, he is glorified by his angels and saints in heaven. Is that not what we pray? Uh, what we pray to our Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Essentially, we're looking to find that same glorification of God by the absolute embracing of the will of God and the order that God established. What is sin? Sin is disorder. It is a breaking of the order a, a rejection of the order that God established when he created us. That's what sin is. And that disorder is in the human will. The human will is love, meant for love. And when we love an inferior good more than the higher good, in the case of sin, when we love an inferior created good more than the uncreated goodness itself, Almighty God, that is like the ultimate disorder. The ultimate insult to God, sin. And what we're asking God to do is restore the order in our own souls by, again, justifying us and sanctifying us. And that has been completed not only in myriads of angels in heaven, uh, but that they were not justified, don't get me wrong. Our, Our Lord did not die for them because they could not be justified, because they could not repent. That's the very nature of an angel. When he makes a decision, it's final, right? But you and I, because of the imbecility of our nature, right, uh, we are capable of making mistakes, admitting it, repenting of it, and changing our minds. So we can repent. So we can be redeemed. And this is what our Lord has done for us. So um, many, many souls have done so and joined the the angels who made the right decision in the first place to be obedient to God. And now we have this this grand church triumphant in heaven, glorifying God even now. And that's what we pray when we say the the prayer, the glory be to the Father. And Father, we end that prayer with the line, world without end. Amen. What exactly do you mean when we pray world without end? Well, again, it's kind of an idiomatic idiomatic translation, right? Per omnia secula seculorum. Some translated this through the through ages of ages which is another way of saying for eternity. Uh, 
the translation of world without well the seculum kind of applies to this world okay the the the, the temporal world uh the created world and it's an idiomatic expression but again the sense of it really is not world without end meaning this world but refers to again eternity um now you are not eternal and i am not eternal and even when we say the they we use the expression that god will give us eternal life we have to be careful about that expression because again eternity means without beginning and without end okay now in that sense we can't have eternal life because we have a beginning right uh we were conceived one day came into existence god created our souls we had a beginning uh an eternal life as we call it there'll be a beginning to that too right when god welcomes us into heaven our lord says come ye blessed of my father and take possession of the kingdom um there will be a beginning of the beatific vision for us okay so in that sense we cannot refer to this really as being eternal we refer to it as being everlasting because there's no end to it right and that's what the peronia secula seculorum actually conveys not so much eternity but it converts it conveys the idea of an everlasting continuance and what we're we're asking for is the everlasting continuance of the, of the glory the glorification of god in heaven by the souls and the spirits of the men and the angels who love him father final question uh in regards to this prayer we sometimes hear it referred to as the doxology what exactly does that mean uh doxology comes from the greek for for uh praise for adoration right? okay and uh, to speak the praise and, and the and the and the glory of god okay uh, the doxology, the word, the word logos is the, the word for word or, you know, we use it in English as, uh, like the study of biology and we, you know, psychology and so on. So, um, here we're referring to the, uh, the kind of a hymn that glorifies Almighty God, singing God's praises as it were. Okay. Well, Father, uh, let's continue then. We have a, uh, a great email here. It's a very, uh, very familiar topic, but yet I think it's very important because we continue to uh, receive emails about this almost on a daily basis. So I don't think we can emphasize this enough. Just from this uh, a viewer who says that I have sought out the traditional Latin mass by the grace of God after much study for its true Catholicism. I converted at 38 years old and I never even knew of the traditional Latin mass. I thought the Novus Ordo was the only Mass, but my studies opened my eyes. She says that there's only one priest at her chapel now, and he says uh, the traditional Latin Mass and also the Novus Ordo Mass. So she asks, how can one priest celebrate the Latin Mass and then an hour later celebrate the Novus Ordo Mass? Is this not precisely what you have mentioned uh, to be wrong in previous programs? Would it not mean that the Latin Mass is just a part of a Novus Ordo parish? And how can the priest be split as such? How can he serve two masses, one towards God and the other toward the world and toward man? How can he do that and truly be leading us sheep to God? Please help me, Father. She's right. He's trying to serve two masters. It sounds as though he has a personal preference for the Latin mass. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, But also he's required for his tenure in a, in a Novus Ordo Diocese uh, to say the new mass. So they're not compatible. Though. I mean, the, the new mass was created to obliterate the traditional mass, to completely wipe it out, replace it altogether. It was only after 20 years when Monsignor Lefebvre consecrated bishops that the Novus Ordo uh, dioceses, actually led by John Paul II, created the Ecclesia Dei Commission to start allowing the 1962 Latin Mass to be said on a very limited basis. Benedict XVI expanded that in Summorum Pontificum, but it's still a travesty because, again, those who created the new Mass knew exactly what it was meant to do. It was designed to crush the traditional Mass and replace it altogether. So the idea that they are being held in the same church, even being said by the same priests, uh, it doesn't make any sense at all. It is, it is truly an anomaly. And she's right. She, she sees that there's a contradiction 
going on here. And um, so what should, what it is very you? worrisome because either the priest who's doing that doesn't really understand the traditional Mass, or he doesn't understand the new Mass, or both. Right? Maybe he doesn't understand either one of them. Maybe he doesn't have any faith, for all I know. But, but if he does, he, he doesn't really, he's not really facing the fact that one is the antithesis of the other. And uh, he's a living contradiction. She sees it, though, and so she should uh, leave there. And she should find a true traditional Catholic priest, an integrally traditional Catholic priest, and uh, go to an integrally traditional Catholic Mass, okay. the true Latin Mass. I don't know where she lives, but uh, if we do, we could perhaps guide her to one. Sure, definitely. Uh, well, Father, speaking of the Mass, we have a question. You're, you're not talking about it. Sorry. Uh, just to... <laughs> you see, you, there, you, there you have a classic case of trying to mix the traditional with the Novus Ordo, mm-hmm. or the quasi-traditional. Because he's probably not really offering the traditional Mass. He's offering a Latin Mass with some of the changes of John the Twenty Third, probably. At least that, okay? And then he's going to sing the New English of uh, liturgy. And you cannot mix the two without sacrilege. I mean, it, it, she would have to face the fact that, uh, you know, he's, he's consecrating hosts at the new Mass. He's probably giving those out to people at the, at the Latin Mass. Or even worse, if he's actually consecrating, perhaps validly, if he's an older priest and he's validly ordained. Validly consecrating hosts the real body and, pl- uh, body and blood of Christ at the at the Latin Mass, and then handing it out to people at the at the new Mass. Just handing it out to people, particles of the host falling wherever. No one cares. Uh, that's a sacrilege. You cannot mix the traditional with the new order without sacrilege. Inevitably, there will be sacrilege involved. So again, all the more reason why she she should not be there. Right. Oh, well, Father, we have a question here from a viewer who asks, is praying the rosary during Mass traditionally acceptable? It says the Mass is the highest form of worship, and we should focus on what is going on at the altar, or at least that is what I was taught. So, Father, could you please explain, is it acceptable to pray the rosary during Mass? Well, Pope Pius XII said that it was acceptable to assist at Mass by, primarily, following the prayers of the Mass in the Missal. But also, secondly, by praying the rosary, or alternatively, meditating on the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said one could worthily attend the Mass by in any of those three ways. Right? I mean, personally, um, I, I gather from what Pope Pius XII said that the preferred way, the way the Church really wants her faithful to attend Mass, is to follow the prayers of the Mass and uh, to use the Missal to do so. But it doesn't mean that it's sinful or somehow irreverent or uh, unworthy to attend the Mass by praying the Rosary or by meditating on the Passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. I would say there are inherent problems with that, though, in the sense that uh, if one is praying the Rosary during Mass, um, it, one could pray five decades or 15 decades of the rosary. Five decades of the rosary would take about 15 minutes, perhaps, <clears throat> at most 20, 20 minutes, and that leaves, you know, what does one do then? But well, one could, I guess, spend the rest of the time meditating on the Passion of Christ. Um, but uh, whether one could remain in meditation on the Passion of Christ for the entire 40 minutes, 45 minutes, hour, Maybe an hour and 15, 20 minutes, hour and a half, requiring for a, required for a Sunday Mass. I don't know. That seems to be um, expecting a little much of most people. So again, it would seem to me that saying that people can pray the rosary during Mass and meditating on the Passion of Christ during Mass inevitably is going to leave a great deal of the time of the Mass uh, somewhat unaccounted for in their prayers. What do they do? A spiritual reading during that time? I don't think Pius XII mentioned that as an option. 
So it just seems as though, uh, other than using the missile and actually following the prayers of the mass, it's sort of like um, uh, a patchwork or, um, what should I say, trying to fill in the time with something pious, you know. Mm -hmm. So I don't mean to disparage uh, Pope Pius XII's judgment in this matter. And there might have been other popes too, Pius XI and so on, who said all, it was perfectly acceptable, acceptable to pray the rosary during the Mass as well. Okay. Um, but uh, still, I think it all comes back to the fact that as Catholic adults, we should be able to follow the prayers of the Mass and find the nourishment for our souls that we need in the prayers of the Mass. The Church has, has provided us those prayers to express what our faith should be there at the altar as it would be on Calvary. And I, I, I'm sure that's that's the, the church's first choice. Mm -hmm. I can put it that way. But, Father, there are certainly times when uh, it's not possible for someone to always follow all, all of the prayers that are being prayed during the Mass. For, for example, mm -hmm. a, a parent with a small child or, or even the, uh, the, the servers of the Mass are not able to always follow all, all of the prayers of the Mass. Mm -hmm. And I, I've come across uh, various holy cards and, and booklets that a that they they place side by side the rubrics of the priest and they compare those uh with the with certain events and the passion of our lord would you say that that is a good way uh for one who's not able to pray the prayers of the mass uh to kind of keep in mind what exactly each of the rubrics each of the movements of of the priest are representing in the past i would say if somebody had such a, a card that would draw a connection between the priest's movement at the altar and our Lord's actions in the passion and death of our Lord, that that would be a very worthy thing to do, you know, to bring that to mind, especially for a server who's right there and observes all of these things, and even can anticipate them because he knows the order of the Mass. But um, even at that, Tom, I mean, you have servers who are serving the Mass, and of all the people in the church, they may understand the least of what is actually being said. If everyone else there is following in the missile. Now, of course, I realize, you know, you can't have, let's say, a seven-year-old child following, uh, let's say, a St. Andrew's missile page by page, you know, line by line. I realize that, okay? And so children, again, they can be taught to pray the rosary. They can be taught to meditate on the mysteries of the suffering and death of our Lord and his resurrection. They can have little prayer books. Okay, I'm talking about an, an adult in the faith. So. When I'm speaking about adults in the faith, I'm talking about by the time they get into the upper years of high school, they should really be able to handle a missile, to use it, and to follow it. Um, there's something seriously lacking if they get to the end of their uh, Catholic education in a Catholic high school and still do not really know how to use a missile or, will, or refuse to use a missile. But um, uh, what you're saying is true, but that still, that still doesn't take away from the point that that would be the primary way, the church's favorite way to follow the Mass, even though not everyone can do it. I mean, someone whose uh, sight is impaired, if the priest doesn't turn the lights out on the church, right? uh, if the person doesn't have, you know, can't afford a missile, I mean, there are any number of things, I suppose, that could come up. But here you have the servers who don't follow uh, and then a missile, and uh, they don't understand the Latin. The priest prays the epistle and reads the gospel, and the servers do not know what he is talking about. The servers do not understand what is being said during the reading of the epistle, reading the gospel. That's sad. Uh, at the academy here in the past, I required that uh, our high school students have missiles in their hands and be using them throughout the Mass and follow the Mass in every prayer. But I understand uh, that this can be a bit problematic for some of them, and perhaps uh, uh, a bit overwhelming. Um, but I've told them uh, that I, I want them to, at the very least, follow in their missiles the reading of the Epistle, the reading of the Gospel, so they know each day's Mass what is said, and to follow the prayers of the canon of the Mass every day. And I want them to memorize them in the course of the year. Memorize the prayers of the canon of the Mass. Mm -hmm. uh, if my memory, memory serves me correctly, the, there are, I think, 18 periods, so basically 18 sentences, 
that comprise the canon of the Mass. <clears throat> and the epistle, it might take a minute or two to read. In Latin, the gospel the same, sometimes less, sometimes more, especially during Lent. The uh, canon of the Mass, generally about five, between five and six minutes. That's all. Between five and six minutes to pray the canon of the Mass with the consecration. <clears throat> and uh, it's it seems to be that this is one of those things that every Catholic student should know by heart by the time he graduates from high school, senior year. And attending Mass every day, virtually every day, uh, at least at, at least the school days and on Sundays, there's no reason why everyone couldn't know the, the prayers of the Canon of the Mass in English, after that matter, in Latin. But I'm, I'm just asking for the English right now. <laughs> um, in short order, if they were really paying attention. I was gratified uh, this past year. I uh, told the students I'd give them extra credit for memorizing the last gospel of the Mass, the beginning of the proemium of St. John's Gospel. And I was surprised to find that there were students who already had memorized it, without it even being assigned. And I asked them, well, how do you know it by heart? And they said, well, we pay attention during the Mass, and we read along, you know, for the last gospel of the Mass, and so we find that we just know it by heart. They weren't making a conscious effort to remember it, memorize it, but it became part of it. They'll never forget that. That's okay. Father, as far as, as anyone who uh, who struggles with following a, a missile, or perhaps, like you said, someone who can't afford one, or whatever it, it may be, we do post on our, our website the, the readings of each daily Mass for every day. So perhaps for those who can't afford a missile, or, or for someone who isn't familiar mm-hmm. with exactly how the missile works and struggles to uh, find the readings of the Mass of each day, we do have uh, each of those readings posted on the website every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, Tom, thank you for providing that. Oh, no problem. That's no a problem. great service. And Father, for those who can't attend Mass every day, it's still good for them to go on and read yeah, the Epistle and Gospel for the day. Definitely. One one final point, Father. You know, we, we talked about the, uh, obviously, the, the reading, following the, the readings of the Mass. That is a preferred way to attend at Mass. But we also mentioned this uh, this idea of coordinating the rubrics, the movements of the priest with events in the Passion of our Lord. And perhaps these two Methods do not have to be mutually exclusive. Perhaps the one can can, can augment the other. It's very easy just to keep in mind uh, simple things, such as when the priest very very at the very beginning of Mass, when he enters the sanctuary, that is uh, reminiscent of our Lord entering into the Garden of, of Olives. And when when the priest bows down to pray the Confidier, it's reminiscent yeah. of our Lord um, sweating Prostrate blood. The and, exactly. And so it's very easy to kind of just keep these things in the back of one's mind as they are also following the readings of the Mass. So perhaps those two methods are not... It would be good to post this on the website, too. Yeah, we can do that. That can be easily done. Sure. Yes, Father. Absolutely. Uh, Well, Father, last thing I wanted to get to here is we have a a great email from a uh, very faithful, faithful viewer uh, here. And it's it's a list of Protestant objections to the Catholic faith from one of their family members. And I don't believe we have time to get through all of them tonight, Father, but perhaps we can pick through a couple tonight and save the rest for uh, for a future program. But I did want to get to some of these tonight because they're great, great, great questions here. And uh, so this this first one here, the first point they make is a uh, this Protestant family member of one of our viewers says that in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Christ says to Peter, quote, And I say to thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The Greek word used for Peter actually means pebble and is distinct in meaning from the word for rock, which refers to a much larger and more solid rock. Therefore, Christ did not actually mean that Peter was the foundation of his earthly kingdom. How do you respond to that objection? This is an objection that St. Augustine answered a very long time ago. It's been around a long time. So they just keep repeating the same thing over and over again. For some reason, they always leave out St. Augustine's explanation, though. I don't understand that. It's been an oversight. We speak days tomorrow, correct? Uh, yes, okay. exactly. So, um, well, Petros, uh, the uh, the masculine form, does have the significance of pebble. Petra, and it kind of refers to the, 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 the substance of rock, you know. And our Lord giving Peter the name made it masculine because Peter is a man, right? Because Peter is a man, the, he used the name 
in the in the masculine, but it wasn't to say that I'm, I'm giving you the name of Pibble. Uh, there are those who actually would, li- would like us to believe that what our Lord was saying to Peter is, you're the pebble, I'm the rock. Upon you are Peter, and upon this rock, you know, myself, I will build my church. As if to, he's, our Lord is saying the exact opposite of what as Catholics understand. Saying, no, I'm going to build a rock, this uh, church on my myself, I am the rock, you're just a pebble. That's how they like to interpret that. And St. Augustine answered very long ago, look, we all know that Christ made Peter the, his vicar on earth. I mean, he just says, this is, we all know this. All Christians know that. That's what he says. He says, we all accept that. So this objection doesn't really amount to anything anyway, because all Christians know that uh, Christ made Peter the, uh, his vicar on earth. Um, but the reason why that word Petros is in the masculine is very obvious because it was given as a masculine name to a masculine person, right? But, you know, you know, this is a prime example of taking out of context something. If you read this entire thing in context about our Lord praising Peter because flesh and blood had not revealed to Peter that Jesus is the son of the living God, but the Father in heaven had revealed that to Peter, right? I mean, the other apostles were saying, well, he's, you know, Elias, he's a prophet. Peter was the one who said, Simon Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And our Lord said to him, my Father in heaven hath revealed this to me. And that was a kind of a statement of a position that Peter was going to have to, that, that he was actually not just speculating, he was taught by God the answer. To the question, right? And it was an act of faith, certainly. So, right from the very beginning, there we see something very different about this. You know, that Peter is in a very special position here. There's no doubt about it. He's in. A, he's put in a unique position. And when, when in the gospel, new names are given, it's those names have great significance, especially when our Lord is the one assigning the names. You know? So, uh, our Lord said said, Thou art Peter, Petros, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. But I, the idea of our Lord saying, You're Peter, and upon this rock myself, I will build my church. That, again, if you think about that, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that our Lord is saying, I will build a church upon myself. And I'm not going to build my church on you. I'm building it on me. Well, what does that have to do with anything that went before? Or anything that comes afterwards? You know, it's totally gratuitous. And it all comes down to a matter in their minds of our Lord saying, uh, kind of gesturing toward himself, something that is not noted in the gospel. At this point, Jesus gestured toward himself and said of himself that upon the rock of himself, he will build his church. It doesn't say that. So they're, they're just basically trying to put words in the Lord, our Lord's mouth. And uh, in a sense, take words out of his mouth that he said, you know, to try to avoid the obvious meaning of this statement of our Lord and what everyone understood too, right? And everyone understood our Lord to be. Now, you know, you transfer to the end of the Gospel of St. John and again, you see how they take that, that just that one word Petros out of context and to try to weave an entire apologetic, an entire negation of everything else, now our Lord is walking along, our Lord risen from the dead is walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee with John and Peter, the apostles. And our Lord says to Peter, right? He says, Dost thou love me? Lovest thou me? And he asks Peter that three times. And he gives the command not to John, but to Peter, You feed my sheep. What is the significance of that? Who feeds the sheep? The shepherd. Here's the shepherd, the good, the good shepherd giving this command to this one individual, Peter, you feed my lambs. You feed my lambs. You feed my sheep, he says. So they they want to simply ignore everything else and zero in on a word they can argue about. This is not really terribly intellectually honest, although I believe there are people who are honestly trying to, you know, use the argument because they're convinced by it. But I, I think intellectual honesty would enable them to see that it, it doesn't work. 
I mean, there, there's a lot more to it than that, too, obviously. You know what happens immediately after that. Immediately after the section that our dear writer brings up there, St. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, uh, our Lord begins to tell the apostles that he's going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. And you know what happens. Peter begins to argue with our Lord. He takes our Lord aside, as though he's trying to be discreet. Peter is not the soul of discretion. <laughs> and he begins to remonstrate with our Lord, saying, no, 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 you know. And it's so odd, because here's Peter, who just shortly before was saying, you are the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now he's arguing with him. You know? What you're saying can't be true. But it seemed like a, a paradox. It was a paradox in Peter's mind, because if he is really the Christ, the Son of the living God, how can these things happen to him? But if he's saying, he, the Christ, the Son of God, uh, Christ, the Son of the living God, that he's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to be crucified, then how can that not, not, not be right? How can it not be true? So Peter was torn in this, uh, between the horns of this dilemma, you know. How can it be true, but how could it not be true? But Peter was thinking as a worldly man, as we saw him so often thinking as a worldly man. As our Lord rebuked him uh, at the Transfiguration, right? Uh, because Peter, well, Peter thought in terms of the, th of the things of this world. And so our Lord said to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a scandal to me. When Peter was denying our Lord's own words that he would go and be crucified for us, uh, our Lord called him Satan, told him to get behind him, which was another way of saying, get out of my sight, because you're a scandal. And he even said to Peter, you're a scandal to me. And the answer as to why was because you mind the things of man and not the things of God. Now, our Lord was going to cure Peter of that, but it wasn't going to be easy. It came so naturally, it was so deep-seated in Peter. And we saw instances of that even after he became the vicar of Christ, right? Even after our Lord uh, constituted him the Pope. Uh, Peter still had to struggle with that, that tendency. But it does go, it's very uh, interesting to see what makes one go from being you know, a rock to being a scandal and even being Satan, the accuser, right? is minding the things of man and not the things of God. And you know, Tom, this is exactly what the modernists of the Novus Ordo do. It's exactly what they are. They're like Satans in the world, minding the things of man, not the things of God. The things that pertain to this world and the things of this life and not the things that pertain to the sanctification of souls and the salvation of souls for the, the everlasting life in heaven. This is not their concern. <clears throat> So anyway, we're, I know that gets off the track a little bit here, but uh, again, I, you know, when we when we encounter these these issues that somebody brings up, we cannot become so narrowly focused as their vision is narrowly focused on, let's say, uh, the ending of the word and what this case means or what that gender means. We we have to we have to be able to see that and decipher it. But we have to see the big picture, and we have to see in the context of all of God's revelation what this really means. And as I say, St. Augustine made it very clear when he responded to that very question 1,700 years ago or so, uh, that um, the question is an, merely an academic question because we all know that Christ did, in fact, constitute Peter his vicar honor. Well, probably let's get to one more of these Protestant objections before we close. This one is, uh, this one's rather fun. So it says, uh, from this Protestant, if you go to the Catholic Church, no one will talk to you. Catholics are not loving or giving. Christ said that we would recognize his disciples by how they love one another. Protestant congregations are much more friendly and they don't forbid talking in church. Of course. Why would they? Right? <laughs> I mean, if they were standing in the presence of their God, I'd like to think they'd have the sense and the decency to be attentive to to God in his presence there. But Catholics believe 
in the real presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God made man in their churches. They believe that he is personally present there as God and man, as their Redeemer. And that is where their attention is directed. So Catholics who are actual really Catholics and have that divine presence and really believe it, they show that in the way they conduct themselves. It would be much easier for them to say, let's go to the church and have a party. Uh, but uh, they go to the church to worship God and not to basically um, chew, chew the fat and uh, just kind of interact with their fellow people. They can do that in the auditorium. They can do that in the church hall. They can do that in the street corner. They can do it in the dance hall. They can do it in the tavern. They can do it anywhere else. But when they go to church, when Catholics go to church, they go to worship. And they don't just worship by singing songs and and uh, dancing or whatever else. You know, or listening to somebody preach madly away for, you know, an hour or so, unless you happen to know a priest who gives long sermons. But the point is, they go to church, ultimately, to worship because their Lord and Savior, the Son of God, is present there for them to come and to receive his love and to return, make a return of love to him. That's what their focus is. Father, how, how well does this Protestant idea of uh, of congregations and brotherhood and all, all of that, how well does that coincide with what you see in the modernist churches where the the uh, pastors or ministers there often come out and uh, tell all of their, their faithful to shake hands with one another before we get started and uh, get to know your neighbor next to you and, and chat it up? Well, I think it's just an illustration of what the Pew Research has found recently, that a third of the modern Catholics and the modernist Catholics, only a third of them believe in the real presence. Only a third of them believe that our Lord Jesus Christ is personally present in the Holy Eucharist. And uh, the other two-thirds, well, I, I'll see, let me see if I can remember. I think a third of, a half of the other two-thirds did not believe. I'm sorry. The other two-thirds did not believe in the real presence, that the Holy Eucharist really is the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. They, they is personally present there. They did not believe that. Half of those who do not believe know that it's the church teaching that he is there, but they don't believe the church teaching. And the other half believe the church does not teach that. They believe that the church teaches that it's pure, purely symbolic, just a piece of bread, that we are assigning some kind of symbolic value that it represents the body of Christ. Okay. So you basically have a third, a third, and a third, roughly, okay? A third who believe it is the church teaching that Jesus really is present in the sacrament, and they believe it's true. A third who believe the church teaches that Jesus Christ is personally present in the sacrament, and they don't believe it's true. And a third who believes the, blessed, the church doesn't even teach that, so they don't believe it, Okay. And uh, so what do you expect would be the consequence when you walk out of Nova Soda Church? <laughs> Whatever entertains you. You go there to be entertained. It's party time. Like Francis. Francis wants the liturgy to be a party. He wants people to be entertained. He wants them to have a good time. That's what it's really all about. See? And so, um, I mean, you'd go there and you'd... you'd um, you do what some people enjoy, just standing around and talking and, uh, you know, kind of meeting friends and experiencing community and sharing fellowship, or is it the way around, sharing community and experiencing fellowship, I don't know. But there's nothing wrong with experiencing community and sharing fellowship. But that's not why you go to church. You go to church to worship God. That's what Catholics believe, right? And that's why they conduct themselves the way they do in their churches, because they believe that the very presence of, of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament is to be adored as the very presence of God himself. And uh, in the Mass, when the body and blood of Christ are placed side by side in the altar, they are actually at Calvary. And they conduct themselves as any believing and loving person would at Calvary. Their attention is focused on that divine presence there, as it would be on Calvary. And they're not chumming around and rooting around their, 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 you know, McDonald's bag to see what happened to the rest of the fries. They're not doing that, of course, you know, because they 
have a sense of the majesty and the greatness of God, they're there to worship him. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do they worship him? By their faith, by their hope, by their love. Like an act of love. Mm-hmm. See, they go there not with the idea that they're going to get something. They're, they're not saying, okay, well, I go to church because I get something out of it. If I didn't get something out of it, therefore I wouldn't go. But uh, they go to church to give. Their purpose is to go to church to give God what they owe him, their faith, their hope, their charity, their love. So this is the way they go to render that service to God, by giving him what they owe him. That is their very minds and their hearts, right, that he created. Now, with regard to the, uh, what you see going on in the Novosera Church again, you see not only in the Novosera churches, but you see many of the Protestant churches now. They're um, becoming uh, basically play centers. Uh, one of the great, I forget where it is now, one of the great cathedrals in, in, in Britain has just uh, set up some kind of a, a circus ride or a carnival ride in, in the church itself because the numbers are dwindling. So that's what they're going to do. So they're going to basically turn it into a circus. And that's what unfortunately happens in many of these churches now. They become kind of circus. And you know, you go to the, you went to the circus in the old days. Okay. Barnum and Bailey, um, is more or less closing down. They've done away with elephants because of PETA and all the rest. And, uh, the circus is, is kind of on the wane right now. But the circus is actually being transferred into the modern churches where they're going to have arcade games. And, uh, they may even have the, the freak shows. Remember, they, they used to have that line, not that I spent a lot of time in the circus or not, but where you'd have the bearded lady. Well, now you got the bearded lady. Now you got the trans, you know? And, you know, the doors are wide open, and you can go in, you can see anything and everything, things that you would never believe possible. You can see it going on in the churches now because they have just thrown open their doors to uh, to become the circus. And... Um, you know, I, recently I was talking to a young man who uh, goes to a conservative Novosoro priest. And uh, his whole family goes to this conservative Novosoro priest. And he's trying, this young man is trying to make it a difficult decision. He's interested in a young lady uh, who's a traditional Catholic. And so he's trying to find his way with regard to what I would call a conservative Novosoro liturgy on the one hand, or the true traditional Catholic Mass on the other, and not just the Mass, the whole way of life, you know. And uh, he's trying to find out for his conscience's sake what's possible for him. So he came and we, uh, we talked for about an hour and a half, and um, I showed him the video that is available of, of Francis's Pinocchio puppet Mass. And you know the one, you've seen it, right? The stadium down in Rio, I, I guess it was Buenos Aires, right? where um, Francis is conducting on this big stage with, uh, I guess, other Novus bishops and other cantors and readers and all the rest, and a stadium with a bunch of kids and their parents. And on the uh, right in front of the the table there, uh, gigantic puppets and all kinds of things swaying back and forth. Pinocchio is one of them, of course. And uh, I showed this to to him to make him understand, get the point across to him that um, they're not done with the liturgy. They're they're actually still working to change it more and more and more. And uh, what this says about the very concept of the mass in the mind of Francis, you know, their supreme pontiff, what does he see the mass as being? So his answer was rather interesting. He watched that. I can see he didn't approve of it exactly. But nonetheless, he wanted to justify it. And this is what he said. Well, aren't puppets part of the South American culture? And what he was referring to here was the Novosoro principle of enculturation. 
of the liturgy. Now, the same principle, by the way, that Francis is using with this uh, Synod on the Amazon to bring pagan rituals into the ma- into their mass, the so-called mass, uh, enculturation. That's a that's a principle that is being inculcated in the minds of the young people today. And they don't question it. Now, if I were to ask that young man, and I didn't at the time because we got off the track, but if I were to ask him, well, name some things that are part of American culture, he might have said, well, let's see, uh, maybe Fritos corn chips, maybe Coca-Cola, you know? I mean, these are kind of iconic American things, right? So I would have just asked him if we had gotten to that point. Okay, so if suppose we wanted to, to use that principle of enculturation, which you have proposed as some sort of a maybe not justification, but at least it's 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 not that bad. Okay, that they have these puppets down there because it's part of South American culture. Suppose um, you acknowledging that Coca Cola and Oreos cookies are something that are just a part of American way of life. Uh, so that's American culture. They belong on the table during during your liturgy, right? So if you walked in, and your uh, Father McGillicuddy were there, and uh, he had uh, Coca-Cola, was pouring into the into that cup, the chalice, and the Oreos, you'd say, well, that's just enculturation. Would that justify it? I'm sure he would say, oh, absolutely not. That would be ridiculous. I would. I wouldn't stay for a moment at that. But for some reason, the idea, you know, when you look at the its abstract principle of enculturation, it has had its effect on them. And their, their knee-jerk reaction is to justify these atrocities they're saying by these, these principles that have been put in place by Vatican II and have been hammered home and hammered home so that they're just accepted as commonplace truisms that no one ever even thinks to question. And yet they're pernicious, they're anti-Catholic, they're sacrilegious, blasphemous. And this is what they get. This is what they get when they put these principles into effect. The next step, as Francis wants to bring out of this Amazon Senate, incorporating pagan rituals and the uh, theology and the spirituality of the indigenous tribesmen of uh, the Amazon wants to incorporate that in their liturgy. It's simply a matter of enculturation. Somehow we have to re-educate people as Catholics because they, you know, for someone to convert from the Novus Ordo to Catholicism, somebody who has accepted those principles, they really do have to, uh, you have to start on that level with them and make, let them see, enable them to see that the principles that they've just accepted and swallowed um, as self-evident are, are actually anti-Catholic. Father, you just spoke in the last objection of how our Lord said to St. Peter that uh, he was a scandal to him because he minded the things of man mm-hmm. and not of God. And is that not exactly what this well, there you are. Of, of enculturation Bringing is? Bringing in human culture <clears throat> and, that was born of pagan beliefs. And when you, you look at this as this, this Protestant objector does, that, uh, you know, she says that Catholics are not loving and giving. Well, sure, if you look at a Catholic Mass from a from a, a man's, uh, a purely materialistic or a naturalistic point of view, then sure, Catholics are not loving or giving because they're busy loving and giving to, to God. So when you look at it from God's perspective, uh, Catholics are very loving and, and very giving. And I think that is exactly what Catholics are doing. They're, they're minding the things of God rather than... Protestants and you know, sort of reminding the things of man. Well, I gather from what you read there that she's saying that during their liturgy, they're not loving and getting giving because they're not paying attention to each other. Right. But the fact is that outside of that worship of the Holy Mass, they are the most loving and giving people there are. I mean, like, uh, the Catholic Church historically, I'm not talking about since the modernists, did this damage. But historically, the Catholic Church, the Catholics have been the greatest donors, have been the most generous donors as a body of, of, of people united in a single religion, right? Uh, have been the most generous donors to virtually every charity there is, right? Yes. And that's just a matter of, of public record. You can, can verify that very easily. And um, <clears throat> long before there were any Protestants, I mean, we 
Catholics are the ones who had the hospitals. And uh, the ones who had the religious orders that were devoted to taking care of those who were very ill, uh, incurably ill, those taking care of the lepers whom no one else would take care of. So what she's saying, if she's saying, okay, during the time of their mass, they're not loving and giving, uh, then you're absolutely right. The point is they are focused on loving and giving to God. Okay? I, I would like to think that she would not fault them for, for doing that considering what we believe, even if she doesn't believe it. And I'd like to think that she would believe, well, if you really believe that Jesus, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is present there, well, then of course that's how you'd behave. You couldn't really act any other way without being disrespectful. If you believe that, I'd like to think that she would see it that way. But uh, the fact is, if you examine, uh, not, again, you can't go by the present day, okay? But you have to go back before Vatican II to see what uh, what Catholics really did when they were living as Catholics. And there was an enormous amount of charity and an enormous amount of love there. And um, love for their fellow men, right? Love for their neighbor. And a lot of sacrifice for them, too. You look back at the history of the church, I mean, entire religious orders dedicated to taking care of the sick and the dying and the poor. Yeah. I mean, that in itself really answers the question. Mm-hmm. And that's reality. That's verifiable historical reality. Yes. Well, Father, I think we can end with that. We went a bit over our allotted time tonight, but I think it was well worth it. We got through a lot. So thank you. Thank you for being here. I appreciate all your time. Well thank you. Mm-hmm. And thanks to our viewers also. I appreciate your continued support. Yes. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and also to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.